Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Mark. All right, Mark chapter 10 is where we're going uh, to continue on as we uh, go through this incredibly wonderful book. And this last song really speaks to um, what, is, what is happening, what has started to happen right here, um, already being talked about and what's coming, and, and it's just exciting. I want you to imagine just for a moment that um, Jesus were to show up, and he wanted to speak with all of us. And we could come and we could talk with him, and, and the first thing Jesus asked us is this, what do you want me to do for you? Now just think about that. This is the Son of God. He can do anything for you. We, we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, all these wonderful things, his power and, and everything. And then he says, what do you want me to do for you? And think about, what is it? what would you ask? Would you... Would it be, you know, I'd really like to be debt-free. I, I'd, I'd like a free college. Or I would like uh, a bigger house. Or I would like a promotion. Or, you know, I would like for, for you to help me to be great. And let's talk about the idea of greatness just for a moment. And, and what that means, because when a follower of Jesus speaks about greatness, it's different. It's supposed to be different than the way the world defines greatness, right? And so if we follow Jesus to seek glory for ourselves, then we would say that we missed the point. And we can say, you know, no, I, there's, no re, there's no way that I follow Jesus for that purpose. But sometimes we don't have to look any further than our prayer lives. And we really begin to think about what is it that we ask God to do for us. And it may be, you know what, I, I need a better job. Or I need, um, you know, I, I would like to, um, you know, make an A on this test, or I would like to have these, and, and listen, in and of itself, those things are not wrong, but what we saw last week is it's all about our motivation, what motivates us. Jesus says, whatever we, he says, come, ask of me, but what is it that drives us? We had the rich young, rich young man last week, right? And we, we, here's this guy, he's got all of this wealth, and Jesus tells him something so radical that it just it dumbfounds the apostles. And he tells them to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And it wasn't that Jesus was setting up, you know, the 11th command. Jesus was dealing with something that drove this man's life that did not allow him to follow Jesus. And, and it's easy for us to look at the rich man, but then we're going to realize this morning that even Jesus' own disciples struggled just like the rich man, but in a different way. And it's about what drives us that we want to talk about and what really Mark has been talking about through this all. So let's just start reading 
Uh, we're in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to teach them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is Jesus' third and final prediction that he gives in the Gospel of Mark. He's marching to Jerusalem. It, just like a, a, you know, this, this conquering king is, is marching in this great procession, only he's not doing it with this military that's behind him. He's not doing it because he has shed blood, but because he's going to a cross to shed his own blood. And they're amazed. They're, these, these guys are amazed at Jesus driving them with such determination to Jerusalem because they, they knew Jerusalem was a place that's dangerous for Jesus. They knew that this was a place that there were folks who kept coming out to where they were and they wanted him dead. They knew all the talk. And Jesus just said last week, what did he say to these disciples? He says, look, you've done what you know, what the rich man didn't do. You have left all in order to follow me. And he says, you'll be rewarded for that. But he says, there will be persecution. However, we're about to find out that a couple of those disciples, and I would say there's more than a couple here, but there's going to be two disciples that want Jesus not to go to a cross but they want to send him into Jerusalem with this glory. And, and they're a lot like the rich man in a small way, but definitely not in the full way. And that they are wanting something of prominence rather than of suffering. So they heard the predictions, and I think that James and John, that we're going to see here in a moment, I think they heard them as, okay, well, this is going to be tough, but we're going to come out on top. And I think that's what precipitates what happens next. Let's look at verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. You read that and it's like, man, what is our reaction to something like this? You know, we, we just talked about how selfish that we can be, right? We can look at our own prayer lives and we can realize, you know, sometimes my prayers are just filled up with what I want from my own life. But here we see these two guys, they're a part not only of the select 12, but they're a part of even smaller number of what we call the inner circle. And even they're struggling with this. 
They struggle just like we do when we ask the question or ask the question by Christ, what do you want me to do for you? So here's what Jesus says to them. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The cup and baptism, they're metaphors. And they can be used in a positive light, but we also see in Scripture, and we did more of this in class, of of how it's used in a negative sense. It's used in a sense of judgment. It's used in a sense of suffering and of pain. And it says here that Jesus, in going to the cross, or or just Jesus going to Jerusalem, he's not going to be sprinkled with blood. He's going to be submerged in it. They still have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus said, do you think you can drink this cup and be a part of this baptism? And what do they say? We're able. And they believe, well, we can endure a little bit of hardship as long as we get the choice seats. Right? That's how they thought. And those who expect favors, those who expect advantages, as far as following Jesus, okay, well now that I'm a Christian, or I've been a Christian, and therefore I expect success, or I expect good things to happen to me, and never bad things are going to happen to me, then those who go into it with that mentality, they're not going to be willing to take up a cross and follow Jesus. They're going to struggle with that. A disciple doesn't follow Jesus for what they get. They follow Jesus for where he leads. That's the whole purpose of following. And you may say, okay, well that sounds great, but what does that mean? That I follow Jesus where he leads. He's been trying to tell us. It leads to a cross. It leads to suffering. It leads to death. But it will also lead to glory and resurrection and being in the presence of God but all of these things are part of following Jesus and going where Jesus goes James and John they're still missing the point right Uh, they're getting some of it but they're but they're missing some key points I mean, we can definitely look and say, okay, this is, where, this is where the difference between the rich man and James and John are located, right? What does a rich man do when Jesus challenges them? He walks away. But James and John, they're still there. So are the other disciples. And while they're not completely getting it, they are there. But they want to ride on Jesus' coattail in order to bring them status, in order to bring them greatness. True greatness is being willing to die to myself. It's willing to suffer for a greater cause and a greater truth than I can produce on my own. That's why we don't say, what must I do? 
we look to the cross of Jesus. And it's a willingness to suffer for Jesus. It's a willingness to suffer for others. That's discipleship. That's what Jesus is trying to ingrain into them and what he's trying to ingrain into us. Now let's put this more into a modern context. We live under the world's standard. And the world's standard says, okay, all of us are given a certain amount of time. And in this time, we've got to do whatever it takes to have greatness. And that would be good grades, uh, degrees or several degrees, to have you know, a good job, plenty of money, admirable possessions. And those are the things that are important. That's what our world feeds to us. They tell us that's what greatness is. And, you, and you've only got a limited amount of time, so you get out there and you do it as fast as you can and as hard as you can. But following Jesus takes the burden off of us because my glory is not in what I accomplish. My glory is found by different standards. And while having these other things are nice, and may even be a blessing of God. The true blessing is not being driven by those things. You may never get a promotion. But you can live in the exaltation of God by serving others. What about the person who works their whole life and then they retire and then they have this real sense of, of discontentment, sadness. And you will see sometimes, as soon as someone retires, I mean, they just, um, they just like, it doesn't take long. It's like, man, they aged really quickly, <laughs> you know? What happened? And what, why? That person worked really hard to get to this place. And it doesn't happen for all, but what I'm saying is the world's mentality is that everything you are is wrapped up in who you were. And when who you were is no longer there, then you're struggling with who you are. By placing our worth on what we accomplish in the world, Jesus wants to change that by looking for opportunities to love God and to love our neighbors. To deny myself and the standards by which the world wants me to live by. But understand, we jeopardize our climb to this worldly success when we live by the life and the principles of Christ. Do you know that? Because you may be in your job and you are promised a promotion if you will look the other way. And you've got a decision to make. Do I look the other way and get that promotion? Even though you're not the one who actually did it, I just don't look and just don't tell. Or do I live by a different set of principles and say, I've got to do what's right by other people and by the life that God wants me to have. 
That's where we have to be. We have to make those decisions. And I want to tell you this. If you live by those decisions and that kind of life in Christ and those standards, then you may lose your job. You may lose your reputation because you're holding other people back as the way they will see it as well. But it's also, while it's hard, it's also very freeing because you're no longer under the burdens of the world and their standards of who you are. And you're living under a standard of God and what he believes you are. That's why we live for him instead of living for the world. One, we find joy. We find eternal life. The other one, we find a temporary life. And it might even be a good one, but it's, it's limited. And it also is going to eventually lead to something that's a downfall. According to Mark, one can never understand who Jesus is without understanding his suffering. And, and, and folks, because it's in his suffering that we, we learn about glory and we follow him in this. Listen to what Romans says. He says then, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Let's stop there for just a minute. What did the rich young, rich young man, what did he come in saying last week? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here, Paul is telling us, listen, to have eternal life, to have the inheritance, what do we do? We suffer, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. But you see, suffering is a part of the glorification. And Peter and John, I mean, James and John, what do they want to do? They want to just skip the suffering part. Let me just get to the greatness part. But Jesus is showing. He's the model. All right, so let's keep going. Let's, let's look at verse 41. I love this. And when the ten heard it, in other words, what had just happened with James and John. When they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Yeah, we saw that one coming, didn't we? You know? So then he goes on in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, because this is getting bad, right? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over you. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Martin Luther King once said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. And he went on in that speech and he said that you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to have uh, no Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You only need a heart full of grace that is motivated out of love for people. How do we respond to tasks that are given to us sometimes? And, and we look at it and it's like it's a menial thing. You know? 
Or, or maybe there's something you can do for others, whether it's here in this church or people at your work or at your home, but you know that, you know, it's, it's not something that everybody wants to do, and I'm probably not going to be honored for it. Or we can get in this mentality of, well, you know what, um, I pay taxes, so the government can take care of the poor. I, I don't have to touch things. I'm, I'm fine the way I am. The greatest virtue of God's kingdom is not power, it's not even freedom, it's service. It's just serving other people. Ironically, greatness belongs to the last. The greatest is the one who is the servant of all. Those of you who are going to wait on the Lord's table, you can go ahead and go on back. We're getting ready to get to that point. I want to take you back to verse 45, though, before we do this. Verse 45 again, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, it means to cover for. It was, it was something that was used of prisoners of war and slaves and someone would come they couldn't do it for themselves but someone else would would pay it so that they could be freed this is what jesus has done for us he's he's cut the way he, he's like the person that we we hear about and and you know this this you know it cuts away through a jungle in order to get to this this prison camp in order to free those who have been in bondage and cannot free themselves. And, and yet, while he cuts the way through for their freedom, as soon as he gets there, he's exhausted and he dies. But he's died because he wants them to have freedom. Jesus has come to ransom us. His crucifixion is not uh, some kind of tragic misfortune. It's not even martyrdom, really. What we find here is a supreme act of sacrifice for all humanity. And Jesus turns the world's idea of greatness completely on its head. He will lay down his life as a ransom for many. And, and the law of ransom in the ancient times is also very interesting. Because if someone, if I were in prison and I were a prisoner of war or a slave or whatever it may be, and someone wants me out of that situation and they pay that ransom for me, then I now become the property of the person who has now freed me. 1 Corinthians says, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondsmen of men because now we belong to God is what he says. And as we prepare to take the bread, let us not forget the symbolism that has been brought before us. And that is, it is the body of Christ. It represents his mission, his passion, to save humanity from their sinfulness. The bread is broken, it is shared, and it is eaten so that we may participate in what his death meant. The body of Christ is a gift. And it's a gift to those who proclaim to be his followers. And as we share this moment with each other, Jesus comes and he joins us. 
He joins us here in communion. It's a time for us to stop focusing on ourselves, to stop focusing on my wants. It's a time for us to stop focusing on what we're going to do as soon as we leave this place in order to relieve us of whatever hunger pains we may have or whatever comfort that we're hoping to have as soon as we leave this place. It's a time for us to remember the ultimate sacrifice. We're meant to leave this moment with our mind on Christ and with a mind that is ready to serve others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this bread. We thank you for your son who gave all of himself so that we could be free, so that we could have hope, so that we could be your children. And Father, we come to you this day as, as free children, and we give thanks to you. And may we as a, a church together, as we partake of this together, Father, help us to remember who you are and for who we're supposed to be. Father, we thank you for this bread. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.